0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Criminally Disturbed. I am one half of your host, Paul.
1: And I'm the other half, Jamie. (laughs) (laughs) And welcome back. Apparently, we decided to kind of switch up our introduction.
0: Yeah, (laughs) we're trying to see what fits, you know.
1: (laughs) And apparently, it's going to take a little work.
0: It will. We don't, you know, we're not one of those cookie cutter type. No. No. Uh, podcast and Mm -hmm. so we we like to kind of switch it up a little bit welcome back to our closet
1: yes we are coming to you from the closet again
0: again yes i I went back and i listened we listened to some of the audio from the last one Mm -hmm. that we did and it it sounded pretty good without a lot of jingle bells in the background from our cat Mm -hmm. refrigerators making ice Mm -hmm. and or freezers making ice anyway Uh, so anyway lot less noise in the background so nothing but the best for our listeners
1: that's right
0: right so what business do we have to take care of I'll let you go through that while I pop this top
1: pop that top okay I wanted to be quiet so everybody can hear you popping your top
0: nobody cares
1: right um, well our last episode Um, We went over all of our new listeners in our different countries. Thank y'all again.
0: Absolutely. Thank y'all.
1: If you would like to email us about anything, any show ideas, any stories of your own, any...
0: Criticisms.
1: Yeah, criticisms. Um, You can email us at...
0: (laughs) CDisturbedpodcast at gmail. Dot com.
1: Yeah, I promise y'all, I'm going to be here in a minute. I'm just waiting for my brain to catch up. Right. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with it.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, so today is Super Bowl Sunday.
1: It is. We will be watching the game.
0: And uh, we, being from Louisiana, we're cooking <laughs> gumbo today. Yes. It's kind of chilly outside. I got to say it's gumbo weather, right?
1: I think any, weather's any weather is gumbo
0: weather. Any weather? Okay, well... It's the only other thing that you can spell in this house right now is the gumbo cooking. That's right. Right. So, Mm -hmm. Um, Super Bowl Sunday.
1: Which we're Cowboys fans, um, but obviously they're not in the Super Bowl. So, we are going for the Bengals because of Joe Burrow.
0: Well, see.
1: I'm going for the Bengals.
0: Well, so the Rams have Whitworth. Whitworth also played at LSU. I mean, he's a he's a dominant player, right?
1: But I love Joe Burrow. Well, mm-hmm.
0: okay. Yeah. I mean, Whitworth also played at West Monroe High School, right? Which was a, a dominant football team, mm-hmm. high school football team in Louisiana for a, a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, won many state championships, but anyway. I mean, we're going to watch the game. We're going to root for whoever. It really doesn't matter. It's about just coming together and and watching the game. I'm really excited to see Dr. Dre. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yes. I
0: really like Dr. Dre. I like Eminem, Uh, Mary J. Blige.
1: If you think about it, our kids are fixing to see how ghetto we really
0: are. Yeah. Snoop Dogg is going to be there. Yeah. Because that's...
1: that's what we were back in the day.
0: And I guess there's a rumor out there that 50 Cent
1: Heck yeah. is
0: going to be there, too. So yep. I'm looking forward to that, yep. you know. So uh, you've got a story for us.
1: I have got a really good story.
0: So, yeah, we when uh, we were starting up our software and stuff and I asked you for a name,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you gave me a name mm-hmm. to, to save this for. Mm-hmm. And I have to admit i don't know this one
1: yeah i come across this i was actually researching something else and i saw a little article on this and i was um, just clicked on it to read Mm -hmm. and oh my goodness i was like oh this is it i'm doing this so here i am here we are um this will be a two-parter Part one is going to be um, just kind of a background of the victims and some of the key people involved. Okay. And part two is going to be theories on what happened to the victims because these cases are unsolved. Keep an open mind because what looks obvious and what we think is going to happen is not going to happen.
0: Well, let's see. If we can get into this and possibly shed some light that mm-hmm. uh, investigators maybe haven't found or right. or whatever, and mm-hmm. you know we hate to see unsolved cases, especially you know when it's of this nature. Right. But uh, you know the case that I did last night is still mm-hmm. unsolved as well. That's right. You know, uh, and in my part two that we're going to record later, you know I'm going to talk about theories and mm-hmm. different suspects and things like that. So. Right. Anyway, I'm sure that at the end of this one, we're going to have our opinions. Yes. So, we'll we'll see how that goes.
1: Which I'm not, obviously, since we're recording, I'm not going to give my opinion. Okay. Because I don't think we can do that. But I will let everybody else make up their own opinion. So, All right. Mm-hmm.
0: Everybody's entitled to their opinion.
1: That's right. Let's do this. Okay. This is titled the Jefferson Davis 8. Okay. I got my info from a book titled Murder in the Bayou by Ethan Brown. There is also a documentary on Showtime. Okay. It's five parts. It's titled the same thing. Really good. I watched the documentary and read the book. I recommend both, but if you don't want to do both, at least watch the documentary. It's really good. All right. Okay. So Jefferson Davis Parish sits in the acadiana region of louisiana
0: yes it does
1: uh the parish also has one of the lowest homicide clearance rates in the country okay yeah the national rate is 64 percent jefferson davis's rate is less than seven percent wow that's not good
0: no it's not
1: The city of Jennings is located in Jefferson Davis Parish. And I know we have um, Louisiana listeners on here, Um, but for those of y'all that don't know and are not from Louisiana, Louisiana does not have counties. Right. So when I refer to parishes, that's our equivalent of (laughs) counties. Right. Okay. So, for the 19th and much of the 20th centuries, Jennings residents found employment in blue-collar working-class industries, which was farming, oil, and textile plants.
0: In Jefferson Davis Parish?
1: In the city of Jennings.
0: In Jennings, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, a handful of the elites of the town controlled most of the local commerce, which I think this probably happens in, like, a lot of small towns. Mm-hmm. A set of train tracks runs through the heart of town, and it separates the town. The north side of the tracks is the home to lawyers, judges, district attorneys, businessmen. Okay. Whereas the south side is the working class. And like the elites from the town, they see the south side as the wrong side of the tracks.
0: Mm-hmm. So, and basically, just to kind of point out, you're talking about Jennings, mm-hmm. and that is... Kind of really halfway in between Lake Charles and Lafayette. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. All right.
1: Jennings also sits along the 400-mile stretch of I-10 that connects Houston to New Orleans. Yeah. This route is favored by marijuana and cocaine traffickers.
0: Yes. There is a lot of activity on that road.
1: Mm-hmm. It's popular opinion that sheriffs in Louisiana don't really have any oversight They don't answer to anyone except for the voters, Uh because, I mean, they're elected by voters, and they usually stay in as long as voters keep voting them in, and they keep running. Mm -hmm. And usually in smaller towns, people like to be in the sheriff's favor, like...
0: Be on their side? Right. Okay.
1: Yeah, like to be friends, and of course, usually this is kind of how the smaller political structures work. Kind of like, I'm your friend, you're my friend, we'll...
0: You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. yeah,
1: we'll take care of each other. Well, the role of sheriff is usually kind of seen as a king and a king maker. The sheriff's the king, and he can make his friends or anybody in his pocket king makers, which kind of yields, well, it does yield to corruption.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, and... Jefferson Davis Parish is not exempt from this. Okay. Mm-hmm. From 1980 to 1992, the sheriff in Jefferson Davis Parish was uh, Dallas Cormier. Okay. At the time, I-10 was beginning to emerge as the popular drug trafficking route. Yeah. Cormier's office instituted a drug interdiction program. They had a drug sniffing dog that it, he was a black German shepherd named Armin. So, while this drug interdiction program was instituted, the parish was avoided at all costs by the drug traffickers. They would actually hand out maps with directions for people to actually drive around the parish. Wow. When they were transporting. Okay. In 1992, Sheriff Ricky Edwards is elected. And (laughs) y'all are going to learn about Ricky okay in this episode and i have a feeling nobody is gonna like him
0: Uh, okay
1: (laughs) ricky did not have a law enforcement background he was a personal properties supervisor for the parish assessor Mm. he also didn't hide his disdain for the south side he dismantled the drug interdiction program
0: so, wh- he didn't have any law enforcement no. background at all?
1: No. and I'm, I'm, How
0: in the hell did he get elected?
1: That's what I said when I read that. I was like, what? And it's going to become obvious. I'd
0: like to see his campaign. True. You know what I yeah. mean?
1: He must have had some good backing.
0: Well, yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, you got to have some kind of legal platform that you're running on. Some kind of law enforcement platform.
1: I, yeah, I would think. Yeah. I don't know.
0: That's kind of crazy.
1: I know. So he dismantled the drug interdiction program.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He told Armin's handler, remember the drug dog? Yeah. Jimmy Horner was his handler. That Horner could buy Armin, or they would kill him. Ooh. So Horner did purchase Armin for ten thousand. But I mean, if if they were just planning on killing him, why didn't they just give Armin to the ha- handler? Right. Why did he have to buy him for ten thousand? Right. Unless that money went right in somebody's pocket. Well, I'm saying. I'm throwing that out there. One of the big controversies that happened after Edwards was elected, the deputies would disregard probable cause during traffic stops, uh-huh. and probable cause is a constitutional prerequisite for any search. Right. So, what would happen is deputies would target motorists that had out of state license plates, and they would unlawfully seize the motorist's cash. And the reason why is because under Louisiana law, there's a actually a drug forfeiture law where citizens who had their assets seized, which would be the cash that the officers were taking, but if they remained uncharged, which obviously the people they were pulling over, they weren't charging with anything, but they were still taking their cash. The person that was pulled over had the burden of proving their innocence and having to pay the highest bond in the nation to get their assets, which is their money that was taken from them, returned. What? So the they would have fuck? to pay a bond to get their money back, which would probably the bond was anywhere. I think it was from ten percent up to twenty five hundred dollars, whichever was highest. I mean, so if this cop took a hundred dollars from you, you would have to pay. Either 10% of that $100 up to $2,500, and it was whichever amount was highest, which would be the $2,500. What the hell? (laughs) Right? What the hell? I have never heard of this. So they,
0: and I haven't either, obviously, but I mean, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, okay, so if I'm got Texas plates Mm -hmm. and I'm rolling through. Mm You know, this uh, Jefferson Davis Parish, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, Jennings, you know, that that area right there. And I get pulled over Mm -hmm. and I've got my family in the car. Mm -hmm. We've got the kids. We've got, you know, cash on hand to pay for gas and things like this. They can just take it. Mm -hmm. Even if they can't find any drugs or any evidence of. Mm -hmm. Or paraphernalia or anything they're just going to take my cash
1: right because it said even if you were uncharged with anything you would still have to prove your innocence in order to get your assets returned so but, you had to prove you were innocent
0: but yeah but but what i'm getting at and i know that you i know that you said this but a law enforcement officer agency cannot seize anything without probable cause
1: right
0: without evidence of a crime or probable cause that a crime has been made right. or, or done. you know. Mm-hmm. But you said that they're ignoring. Yes. Okay, so mm-hmm. please tell me there were lawsuits in this.
1: I'm getting to Golly, that.
0: Golly, this is, ooh. Okay.
1: I'm just setting the tone for what we're fixing to be dealing with.
0: Well, yeah, I, and I know. You know how I am when it comes to, you know, I, I abide by the law. Right. However when the laws are broken by the very people that are to enforce the laws right that infuriates me exactly because these people are given a power and when they break the laws that they are supposed to enforce right even when and more specifically when they go against constitutional rights right then I just, I get very angry with that.
1: Basically, don't abuse your power. Exactly.
0: Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. an abuse of power. It So is. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: Okay. So, the office did settle many lawsuits that were brought against them because of this. But, before that happened, on January 3rd of 1997, Dateline NBC ran a 45-minute expose on the illegal traffic stops. They rigged a test vehicle with Florida license plates, installed hidden cameras, and set the cruise control to 63 miles per hour, which is below the speed limit of 65. The crew then drove on I-10. Moments into the trip, they were pulled over. They were told they were speeding and they were slowing down and driving from line to line. What? Yes.
0: And, And I'm assuming they were in this parish.
1: Yes. Okay. Okay. So, nothing happened with that stop. The next day, they were pulled over again. This time, they were told that they were slowing down real fast in traffic, which makes no damn sense. But, okay, that's what the cop told them. The deputy then looked into the wallet of the driver, who was a a Dateline cameraman, and asked how much cash he had on him. What?
0: Okay. Uh, Okay.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. All right. this was recorded. On camera. good. (laughs) Yeah. So Dateline got with Sheriff Edwards when this happened, Mm -hmm. and they told him of the allegations, and Edwards was like, no, that didn't happen. And Dateline was like, oh, let me show you this video. (laughs) Yeah. Okay.
0: All right. And his response was? He played dumb. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I'm going to tell you this little story. This is something that happened before um, our victims started showing up. And the reason why I'm throwing this in there is because some people believe that this started what happened to the victims.
0: Okay.
1: Harvey Lee Bird Dog, that was his nickname, Burley, he was a prescription pill dealer.
0: Okay.
1: And he would deal with thousands. Right. And he lived in South Jennings. He had a business partner who was Mike Dubois. And he also had a man living with him named Jared Sobel. Sobel was a confidential informant. Oh. Yeah. He was in deep trouble with the law, Sobel was. He was suspected of robbing an elderly couple, so he decided to turn in his roommate, Bird Dog, to lessen his charges. Uh Uh-huh. On April 20th of 2005, the Jennings Police Department, the state probation and parole agents, and investigators from the DA's office converged on Bird Dog's house. Uh Uh-huh. They were doing a raid. When they burst through the front door, they yelled police. And from what they said, it was chaos in there because it was dark, because nobody had paid the light bill, because everybody had spent their money on drugs. Okay. (laughs) So the only lights in the house were from the beams of the police, flashlights and a battery-powered lamp that was in the kitchen. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: After entering, John Briggs' victim who was a probation and parole agent, encountered an addict named Leonard Crochet, who at the time was 43, when he was standing in the living room. So briggs Beckton told Crochet, show your hands. And he claimed that Crochet didn't comply. He said instead that Crochet made a, a sudden movement with his hands toward his belt line. briggs Beckton shot him. An hour after the raid began, a ambulance did show up, picked up Crochet, took him to a hospital, and he died. Oh, man. Yeah. The inhabitants that were at the house were taken into custody and transported to the Jennings Police Department for questioning. Mm-hmm. A witness that was inside the house said that Crochet was standing with his hands in the air when he was shot. Louisiana State Police investigators were unable to locate any items in the immediate vicinity of Crochet's location in the residence, which could have been construed as a weapon. So basically, Crochet was unarmed. At least one law enforcement witness said that Crochet was actually hiding a crack pipe when he was shot, and he was not reaching for a weapon. In the years prior to his death, Crochet had told his friends and relatives that the cops in Jennings harassing him because he refused to sell drugs for them. What? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Yeah. He told relatives, I know a lot about a lot. So, I put this in there because this is going to tie into other cases. Okay. So, basically, anybody that was involved with this feels that the cops were there to do the bust, but when they saw Crochet there, they took it as... Well, he knows that we want him to sell drugs for us. So let's go ahead and take him out real quick since he's here. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. This is shaping up to be something that's probably going to end up pissing me off.
1: (laughs) It will. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So keep that in the back of your mind. And it's going to come up again. Okay. So just hold on to that. Our first victim was Loretta Chasson. She was 28. She was discovered on May 20th of 2005. Her estimated date of death was May 17th of 2005. She was found in the Grand Marais Canal. Okay. The coroner found no evidence of significant injuries, and her manner of death was listed as undetermined. She had Zoloft, Celexa, and cocaine in her system.
0: Celexa?
1: Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Her blood alcohol level was 0.16, which which was defined as a sloppy drunk.
0: Two times. Yeah. Two times the legal Mm -hmm. limit.
1: At the time of her death, Loretta was deep in a crack addiction. She was married to Murphy Lewis, who was a shipyard worker. They married in March of 2000 in the backyard of a relative. They had two boys. One was born in 1999, and the other was born in 2002. Her husband, Lewis, said that he knew she did drugs recreationally, but what was once like two weekends out of a month turned into an everyday thing for her. Okay, so he
0: saw that kind of... Yes. ...ramping up. Okay. Mm
1: -hmm. Loretta would disappear in the South Jennings drug scene for days, sometimes weeks, and she would reemerge long enough to beg Lewis for money to purchase meals. Okay. By 2004... Lewis had persuaded her to enter a local outpatient drug rehab.
0: Good.
1: The stint failed, so they separated, but they didn't legally divorce. So when they separated, Loretta sought refuge with friends and extended family. At the time of her murder, she was staying with Barb Deschatel. Another one of her friends that she would stay with and a a lot of the sex workers would stay with, her name was Roxanne Alexander. She was actually seen as a guardian of the sex workers Hmm. in South Jennings. Like a pimp? No. Okay. Like a safe place to stay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Safe house. Yes, she was a safe house. Okay. Um, At one point, the majority of the sex workers did live with her. Anytime that they needed like a safe refuge, they would come to Roxanne's house because she lived on the north side. Okay. But Roxanne did have a drug addiction also. But she was more structured. She wasn't like every day having to get be out there getting a fix. Okay. So like, All right. yeah, she did actually. I guess have a normal life, even though she was dealing with an addiction. But like well, she a, still
0: had the addiction. But
1: right. But yeah. she was more structured.
0: Well, yeah, I yeah. got gotcha. you.
1: So Roxanne said that since she was a more secure environment for them, she could help them out. That the women called her mama.
0: All right.
1: And. Since they called her mama, they felt comfortable with her, so they would tell her their most closely held secrets, and these women did have a lot of secrets. Oh,
0: sure they did.
1: Just before Loretta was killed, her and Roxanne were laying in the bed talking, not like laying in the bed like that, but just talking. Yeah. Loretta had actually told Roxanne, I'm scared, I'm tired of sucking dick for crack, I want to take my kids, and I want to go away. And she was crying when she said this. Yeah. And then not long after that, Loretta was found. Victim number two was Ernestine Daniels. She was 30, and her body was found on June the 18th of 2005. Her estimated day of death was June the 16th of '05. She was found in the Aguilar Canal, which is six miles from where Loretta was found.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: She was wearing only blue jean shorts. Her OK. Blood alcohol level was .08. And she had cocaine in her system.
0: Now, this is the second victim Mm -hmm. that you've told us about. Mm -hmm. You've given us what's in their system Mm -hmm. and what their blood alcohol level was. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that comes into play at some point.
1: I don't think it does. But I'm just trying to, you know, tell. Okay. Give everybody details. Oh, okay. I got you. All right. Her death was ruled a homicide. She had three incised wounds to her neck.
0: Incised wounds?
1: That's what it said. Incisions. Yeah, but it said incised.
0: Okay.
1: She had three cuts across the front of her neck.
0: That's what I would think when you say incised. Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's probably the legal term, I guess. Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I was just trying to think of what incised meant. I guess it would be like an incision. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: She had bruises on her left hand and post-mortem injuries from marine predators. Okay. So critters. (laughs)
0: well it sounds like some something more than a critter
1: Yeah, yeah yeah we'll get to that
0: oh really yeah oh
1: ernestine was a devoted churchgoer she attended the greater first apostolic church she attended the church with her four children and her husband calvin ernestine's downward spiral began when her marriage to calvin dissolved Okay. After that, she left the church, she lost her home, and she moved in with a violent, drug-addicted boyfriend and began hustling the streets of South Jennings. Okay. She was last seen alive on June the 16th of oh five. She was searching for potential clients near Renshaw, which is a tiny street off of South Main Street. Okay. After she had sex with one client, Ernestine was walking along the strip searching for a man named Larry West. And she was searching for him because during the spring, she would crash at his house, and next door to his house was an abandoned house, and she would do sex work out of the abandoned house. Oh, I see. hmm So, she was mainly looking for Larry for a place to crash. Sure. Yeah. So, that night, she actually did have sex with Byron Chad Jones, and while her and, and Jones were occupied, his friend, Lawrence Nixon, was waiting for his turn. Okay. Yeah, and it's not clear if Ernestine ever had sex with Nixon, um, but they do know that she did have sex with Jones that night. Okay. And that was the last time she was seen. Victim number three was Kristen Lopez. She was 21. Young. I know. Wow. Her body was found on March 18th of 2007.
0: Seven. That's two years.
1: A fisherman reported a body flowing in the Petagene Canal on the outskirts of Jennings.
0: Man, these fucking fishermen are busy as hell.
1: The victim was naked except for a gold ring and a white sock with red hearts. Her estimated day of death was March the 6th of oh seven. The coroner's office ruled her cause of death undetermined and noted that the body was significantly decomposed. There were no obvious injuries, no scalp injuries, no facial or rib fractures, but instead she did have horseshoe-shaped puncture wounds consistent with the frontal jaws of alligators. Which is, yeah
0: would probably be very common.
1: Right. Her blood alcohol level was 0.06 and she had cocaine and soma in her system. Soma? Mm Mm-hmm. The sleeping medicine? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Investigators confirmed her identity by the tattoo on her lower right leg. So, keep that in mind. Okay. Kristen was intellectually disabled and received an SSI check every month. She grew up in Jennings, and she participated in the Special Olympics events in Baton Rouge. This is when she was younger. I'm giving you her backstory. Okay. Yeah. She had little support from her parents. Her mother struggled with drugs, and her father was a regular at the Boudreaux Inn. And I'm going to tell you about the Boudreaux Inn here in a little bit.
0: Oh, please do.
1: Yes. Between the ages of 8 and 10, Kristen lived with her grandmother, Nancy. In her preteen years, she actually was returned to her parents and was placed in what her mother dubbed a slow learning class in school. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. When she was 13, she was sexually assaulted by a 35-year-old man. I don't know whatever became of that. That was just put out there, so we're seeing what kind of life she had. She dropped out of school in the eighth grade and got lost in the South Jennings underworld. Hmm. She became alienated from her friends and family. Her grandmother said she was out in the streets, she'd go from one place to another, and she would sleep on porches and in barns. Kristen also witnessed Leonard Crochet's murder at the beginning. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. She was in the house when Leonard was murdered.
0: Oh, by the officer? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, wow.
1: Okay. Tracy Chasson, Mm -hmm. a fellow sex worker, was the last person to see Kristen alive.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: On March the 5th, they were at a house on Frank Street. The house served as a base for sex and drugs in South Jennings. Tracy had begged Kristen to go home because they had been partying for days. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And Tracy felt that the Frank Street house was not safe. Tracy left, but she left Kristen there. Yeah. Okay. When a week passed with no word from Kristen, Tracy got worried. So, on March the 15th, she called Kristen's mother, Melissa Daigle. Melissa went and picked up Tracy, and they went to the police station where they filed a missing person report. After they filed that report, Kristen's body was discovered three days later.
0: Whoa. hmm Okay
1: victim number four is whitney dubois she was 26 her body was found on may the 12th of 2007 her estimated day of death was may 11th of 2007 she was found near the intersection of earl duhan and bobby roads i guess bobby was just bobby i was thinking it was two two names but i guess not and bobby Rhodes, sorry <laughs> she was Fully naked, except for a brown and white elastic band on her wrist. There was also an earring found on the ground at the crime scene. Her blood alcohol level was 0.42, and she had cocaine and Xanax in her system. Her manner of death was undetermined.
0: Whoa.
1: (laughs) Right? Whitney struggled with drug addiction, and she had a troubled background. Her mother, Luella, abandoned her and her two older siblings, Cody and Taylor, when Whitney was six months old. Oh, okay. Yep. Ellery and Dorothy Dubois of Jennings learned through a friend about the children being abandoned, so they offered to temporarily take care of Whitney, and her (laughs) her two older siblings were placed in foster homes. So Whitney actually stayed with the Dubois family until she was two. And then one day, out of the blue, her mother, Luella, popped back in town and said, Hey, want my child back. Okay. Social services didn't agree with Luella getting Whitney back. But at the time, Whitney's mother was dating a cop from Jennings who knew the judge personally. Oh. So the judge ruled that all three of the kids could be returned to their mother, even though she still had a drug and alcohol problem. So mother gets Whitney and her other two kids back. The Bois family didn't hear from them again for two years. Luella called one day out of the blue, said she was in a bind, and she needed money. So the Dubois family drove straight to Stephenville, Texas, because that's where Luella was. Okay. The family actually wanted to take all three of the kids back with them, but Luella would only allow them to take Whitney, who's now four. So while they were there, the Dubois family purchased a vehicle for Luella, they went and bought groceries, filled her cabinets with food, and they left Luella some cash so that way she could take care of Taylor and Cody since she went and let the Dubois family take them to also.
0: So these people went all out.
1: They did. hmm Whitney's biological father was actually serving life in prison for murdering a police officer. Damn. But he willingly signed over his parental rights to the Dubois family. Mm-hmm. Luella wouldn't sign over her parental rights. So the Dubois family really had no legal authority to keep Whitney. Mm -hmm. So basically it was anytime Luella was like giving my child back, they had to give her back. Sure. So this happened. That's sad. That is so sad. So this happened. She would be in and out of the Dubois home for the next few years. Oh. Her older sister Taylor remembers that Luella had eight husbands. Holy shit. Right. And these, these are tales of what happened when the kids were actually with Luella. One of the husbands actually handcuffed Taylor when she was seven to a water pipe outside as a form of punishment. What? Uh, right? Her brother Cody received so many beatings that he suffers from scar tissue and cysts on the back of his brain today. Oh, my God. At one time, Cody was actually caught trying to steal from a store, so one of the husbands put his fingertips to a stove and burned them to teach him a lesson on not stealing.
0: His fingertips.
1: His fingertips. One husband actually sliced Cody's wrist open with a butcher knife. God dang. All three of the kids were sexually abused by one of Luella's boyfriends damn they went to court and the judge told luella okay you need to decide if you want these kids or you want this boyfriend she chose the fucking boyfriend which i guess is good
0: yeah get the kids Mm -hmm. away yeah
1: and she actually ended up marrying that boyfriend but after they were married he actually went to jail for these sexual abuse charges so hmm.
0: who filed the charges
1: Taylor, daughter Taylor, she was a little bit old. They were like in their early teens. Okay. She called the cops and said, Uh, hey. And yeah. Wow. So after this happened, Whitney and Taylor were officially adopted by the DeWa family.
0: Mm, and their good. brother
1: went and lived I think that's another family member. So I mean they got out of that situation. But I mean by now
0: damage new has been done. Oh, a lot. Hell yeah, they did.
1: Yeah. Damn. At sixteen, Whitney started to rebel against the Dubois. Um, they were strict and they always kept a close eye on the kids, which I mean, to me
0: They they had no chance. Right. I mean, they this is how they've been bounced around right. and then and then abused
1: mm-hmm.
0: by these stepfathers right. over the years and stuff. They which, they had no chance. I
1: know. And I see the Dubois family obviously keeping a close eye on the kids. For I mean, sure. look what they've been through. I know. So, when Whitney turned 18, she moved out and got a job at a fast food restaurant. Okay. And at that point when she moved out, her drug use was, was just recreational. Okay. However. However. A year later, she met a Jennings drug dealer by the name of Alvin Bootsy. That was his nickname. Lewis.
0: Is that... Uh no, I'm not, I am better not say that. <laughs> you know what I was going to say, uh-huh. right? Yeah.
1: His, Bootsy's brother was married to Loretta. Oh. Was? Mm-hmm. Because you remember, she's dead now. Yeah. Um, Bootsy also witnessed Leonard's Crochet's murder.
0: All these people were in that house.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, so Whitney and Bootsy moved in together. And several years later, they were arrested together after the police raided their home for illegal narcotics. While Whitney is in jail, she found out she was pregnant, and they released her because she's pregnant. So Whitney's, she's actually thrilled about becoming a mother, and she's like, I'm going to be a good mother. I'm going to be, obviously, what my mother wasn't to me. And so she moved back in with the Dubois family because... She wanted to get clean. She wanted to raise her baby in a good environment.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Well, when she went into labor, um, she had a rough labor, so she ended up having to have a C-section.
0: Okay.
1: And they put her on pain pills.
0: Oh, no. So
1: she got (sighs) re-addicted. And she eventually lost custody of her daughter. Damn. So her family was starting to get fed up with her because they're like, we need you to get cleaned up. We need you to stop using. But she wouldn't. So she began to distance herself from them. And then, as she was distancing herself, her, her drug use got more.
0: So, you, when you say her family distance mm-hmm. the herself, the Bois family. The Bois family. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Whitney eventually did meet a new boyfriend. And a week before she was found, her and her boyfriend were moving to a new home. They were actually both trying to stay clean. And she was wanting to work on getting her daughter back. Sure. In her final days, her and her boyfriend got in an argument. And he threw her out of the house. Okay. So she took off and started bouncing from home to home and doing drugs. Mm. In the early morning hours of uh, May 11th of 07, she stopped by by her older brother Mike Bois' home. He was an, actually a child of the Bois and he was uh, 20 years older than Whitney, um, but he... He still considered himself her brother. Yeah. So she wanted to stay with Mike, but Mike didn't want her to stay there because she was stealing and, you know, doing whatever she could do, steal stuff, I guess, to go sell for drugs. Okay. So they started arguing. The day after her body was actually found was Mother's Day. Mm. And her family remembers that her daughter was actually five when she died, had made Whitney a card at school and was looking for her mom because she wanted to give her mom that card. So they actually had to tell her daughter what happened. Well, they didn't tell her what happened, but they told her that her mother went to heaven to be with Jesus. Mm. Horrible. Oh yeah. Horrible. Our next victim is Laconia Muggy. She went by Muggy Brown. She was 23. She was found on May the 29th of 2008.
0: Okay, so a year later.
1: Yep. Her estimated day of death was May the 27th of 2008. She was found on Rocka Road, which is east of Highway 102. This road leads to the police shooting range. Oh. She was fully clothed when she was found. Her blood alcohol level was .04, and she had cocaine in her system. Oh. She had multiple stab wounds to her head and her neck, three cuts behind her right ear, and approximately seven cuts across the front of her neck.
0: Ooh, seven cuts. Mm-hmm. My goodness.
1: Muggy is the only victim whose body was found by a law enforcement officer. Oh. Mm hmm. She was found at 2 a.m. in the morning. And it also appeared obvious that whoever left her body on the gravel road knew it would be discovered quickly and that the person who left her there had some general knowledge of how to destroy forensic evidence because her body was doused with bleach. Oh, okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Muggy's mother, Gloria, was in prison when Muggy was a baby, so she was raised by her grandmother, Bessie. Okay. Muggy did have a son, but she wasn't sure who the father was. Muggy had a boyfriend that she fought with constantly
0: Hmm. and it
1: would sometimes be physically on May the 24th of 2008 her boyfriend Stymie that's her boyfriend's nickname (laughs) was partying at the budget inn
0: oh yeah the
1: budget inn when hustler Irvin Big Mac Edwards kicked in the door Big Mac was furious because he had just been robbed of $3,000 oh
0: shit Better get Big Mac his money back.
1: Muggy's boyfriend, Stymie, said that Muggy did it, which is like, really? Why would you do that? Yeah. Big Mac vowed to hunt her down. So by the next day, Muggy learned that she was a wanted woman. Obviously, you know, she's fixing to go on the run. So for much of May of 2008, Muggy was a ghostly presence at her family home, meaning she would be in and out and really not there that much. Yeah. To those close to her, she did seem withdrawn and distracted and unhappy. She barely engaged with her grandmother Bessie, who was her longtime confidant. Mm. But on Memorial Day, she did show up for the family's annual reunion style barbecue. Just after 11 that night, Muggy approached her grandmother and said, and got down on her knees and told her grandmother, I love you there's nothing that i wouldn't do for you and my son i have his name in here but i don't want to repeat his name right bessie said that it seemed like a goodbye and she said moments later muggy went to the living room and packed a red bag with clothing and told her that she was going to the laundromat Mm -hmm. which her grandmother thought it was weird because they had a washer and a dryer
0: in the house yeah
1: she's like but okay she's like i didn't stop stop her from leaving so, Bessie said she walked out of my house that day, and that was the last time she was seen. Oh, shit. hmm Our next victim is Crystal Zeno. She was 24. She was found on September the 11th of 2008. Her date of death is unknown. She was found on Lecour Road in the woods. She had no clothing or jewelry, and her toxicology is unknown because she was severely decomposed. Okay. Yep, her death was ruled a homicide.
0: Uh, but how is it ruled?
1: I d I I don't oh, know. Oh
0: okay.
1: Crystal <laughs> had a trusting demeanor and was a devout and had a devout Christian background. She struggled with prescription drug addiction and counted on minimum wage jobs. She also battled from severe mental illness at age. At age 12, she was diagnosed as bipolar, and for years, her mother, Sarah, struggled to get her treatment for it. Mm -hmm. By the time she was 15, Crystal was so alienated that she ran away from home, and she didn't return until three years later. Crystal frequently spoke about her fears of becoming the next victim. Her mother said they would talk about it often. The last time Crystal was seen was on August the 29th. She rendezvoused with a John at the Budget Inn.
0: Oh, damn. Party at, at the Budget
1: Inn. I know. Damn. At approximately 5 p.m., Crystal left the motel on foot, headed toward a Phillips 66 gas station. This was a roughly three-mile walk from the Budget Inn. So she was seen walking along the road, smoking Newport one hundreds. I don't know how they were that specific. <laughs> right? When she spotted a stranger in a parked car, she asked the stranger to borrow the car, but the stranger refused. What
0: the fuck? I
1: know. I was like, okay.
0: I mean, I, I'm thinking about Felicia on Friday. That's what
1: I thought. When she finally reached the Phillips 66, she used the payphone, and that was the last time she was seen.
0: Mm.
1: hmm Our next victim is Brittany Gary. She was seventeen. Oh, shit. Her body was found on November the 15th of 2008. She was actually the cousin of the third victim, Kristen. Okay. And her best friend was the victim that we just learned about, Crystal. Oh. I thought you were going to say something else.
0: No, I mean, I'm just kind of putting all this together, Mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm, I'm just waiting for you to say, and she also witnessed the, you know, Go ahead. Sorry. Okay.
1: Her estimated day of death was November the 4th of 2008. She was found on Keystone Road, which is south of Highway 1126. Mm-hmm. She had no clothing except for a gray beaded bracelet on her right ankle, which I don't guess that really counts as clothing. Not really. Her blood alcohol level was .03, and she had cocaine in her system. Her manner of death was asphyxia. When Brittany went missing, her and her mother, Teresa, had returned to Jennings less than a week earlier after living in Texas for four months.
0: Should have stayed in Texas. I
1: oh, know. They had moved to Texas with hopes of securing a better life. Brittany had expressed to her mother her fear and concerns regarding the other women's deaths. She so was, we had
0: another one that was mm-hmm. expressing concern.
1: Remember her best friend.
0: Yeah, that's what or I'm saying. Died. So, yeah.
1: She was scared and wasn't sure who could be trusted anymore. In the fall months after Crystal's murder, Brittany became heavily addicted to crack. The drugs in her mourning over Crystal made her behavior increasingly erratic. On November 2nd, she went to the dollar store to purchase more minutes for her cell phone. When she didn't return home that night, her mother, Teresa, stayed up all night worrying. The next morning, Teresa went to the police station and reported Brittany missing. Brittany's Uncle Butch assembled a search team, and this is his statement. He said, I had no support from law enforcement whatsoever. I talked to Sheriff Ricky Edwards, and the sheriff said, I have nothing pointing in this direction to justify having officers out there with you. All we know is that she is missing. Really? Um, But it's known that her best friend was Crystal that just died.
0: Yeah. And
1: she is related to Kristen. Right. Who has died.
0: Cousin. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. One of the search members that was helping was Melissa Daigle, who was Kristen's mother. Mm
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They would search every day from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. And depending on whatever day it was, there there would be anywhere from 10 to 30 searchers. After two weeks of searching, she was found by the searchers. She was found on the side of the road. The sheriff said that she was identified by tattoos right after they discovered her. But her mother said that she wasn't identifiable because she had been in the elements from November the 4th to November the 15th.
0: Now, this is South Louisiana. Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It normally does not get cold. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, every now and then, mm-hmm. you know, we'll have a a cold November, but not very often. Mm-hmm. This is, uh, I, I looked up and mm-hmm. found Keystone, and there is nothing there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, she was out in the open.
1: Well, she was partially submerged in some water. So, maybe it was kind of like a, a ditch at the time. And the reason why I say this is because her sister... Um, was actually there as they were pulling out the body. Her sister said, like, half of the hair was gone from this body. Okay. So, at the time, the family was still like, we don't know. But the sheriff was like, oh, yeah, this is her.
0: Okay. So, these fields mm-hmm. that are on Keystone Road
1: mm-hmm.
0: look like farming fields. right? Okay? Mm-hmm. There are man-made waterways. Okay. To basically... They use these to water the fields. Mm-hmm. And I see right there on Keystone, there's a waterway.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's on both sides of the road. And it's the only water on that road.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I can see it. Yeah. So that's where she was found. Wow.
1: Mm-hmm. So after she had died, Reverend Stacy Pullard. He was actually interviewed in the documentary. He performed the funeral service because the funeral home where um, Brittany's body was. Had to contact him because the other preachers in the area refused to do Brittany's service because she was an alleged prostitute. <sighs> I mean, that shouldn't matter. It should not matter. You know. So, And like I said in the documentary, he did an interview and he was pissed. Because he was like, "How can y'all? How can y'all be like this? This is a child, you know. No matter yeah. what she did,
0: right? So, I mean, and these are supposed men of God,
1: right? Yeah. I mean, you're not supposed to judge. No, you're not. Mm-hmm. In December of 2008, a multi-agency investigative team, which was called MATE, M A I T. It, co- it was composed of federal, state, and local law enforcement. They were formed to investigate the unsolved sex worker slings, because now we got 7 Mm-hmm. It should have been clear to the sheriff's office that the victims were linked by either blood relatives, by their sex work, or the places that they had lived together. Sure. So, on December the 18th of 2008, in front of the courthouse in Jennings, Sheriff Edwards- said that he couldn't connect the killings. What? Yeah.
0: I mean, it's right there in front of you, dude.
1: Yeah. Okay. His statement. The facts that we currently have do not allow me at this time to say with certainty that these cases are all linked.
0: Okay. You have given mm-hmm. some pretty damning evidence right. here. And, and as you've been kind of talking about the victims and, uh-huh. and uh, giving descriptions of, okay, well, this person had this in their system. This person was found here. Mm-hmm. This person was partially nude. This mm-hmm. person was nude. Mm-hmm. Every one, almost every one of these bodies, the ones that I could find information or the uh, locations on, mm-hmm. they're all south of Jennings.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Okay. All the bodies, most of the bodies were found south of Jennings. Most of them south of 1126. If this isn't connected, I want you to prove to me how they're not. Right. Because this, there's connections all over the place. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I say bullshit on right. that, Sheriff
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, Edwards. Mm-hmm.
1: So Just wait. Sheriff Edwards dwelled on the serial killer theory. Once again, this is his statement. You have all asked whether or not this is a serial killer, he told the crowd, which included community members and relatives of the victims. I caution you that the term serial killer is complicated and conjures images based on Hollywood shows of a frightening looking maniac. Okay, this is still his statement.
0: Yeah, because Ted Bundy was frightening looking. Right. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, Jeffrey Dahmer was frightening looking. Right. Bullshit, Sheriff.
1: Just just wait. Just wait. Still his statement. However, most of the time, the offender or offenders in a serial case end up looking as normal as you and me. The typical guy next door. Which is what you just said.
0: My God. Jeffrey Dahmer Mm -hmm. comes to mind.
1: He then spent the remainder of the press conference ticking off the characteristics of serial killers. Once again, this is his words.
0: And this is a guy that was elected uh-huh. with no prior mm-hmm. law enforcement mm-hmm. experience whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And he's going to sit here and try to profile uh-huh. a kill. What right. the fuck, dude? Mm-hmm. I mean, you and I have more experience with this. <laughs> right. than oh, Shit.
1: Okay, so he he's ticking off the characteristics of serial killers. Okay, this is his words. Do you know someone who is superficially glib and charming? Self-confident? Appears non-threatening initially? Physically strong, not to be confused with someone who works out every day at the gym. Frequents the area where the girls go missing from. Quick to anger, especially if rejected. Lures girls with alcohol and drugs. May have a formal criminal record involving assaulted behavior with a knife and may include burglary. May not necessarily have a violent criminal history. That's that's what he said. That that was his description.
0: Mm. His description of what?
1: A serial killer. Uh, I mean... Made okay. No sense. It made
0: no sense. Made no
1: sense. Mm-hmm. At the press conference, reporters as well as friends and family of the victims voiced their skepticism and frustration.
0: Okay, so, so let's go through your list here. Mm-hmm. Okay, do you know somebody who is charming? Okay, mm-hmm. I can think of several. Ted Bundy. Jeffrey Dahmer. Okay, or you know. Do you, do you know of somebody who is physically strong but not necessarily works out?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: John Wayne Gacy. Yeah. You know he wasn't a huge. I mean he was big, round, mm-hmm. but he was short, but he was strong. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, I mean, he just did. He just like go through evidence of other cases and put these these things on a list and
1: maybe so. Okay.
0: Here's my rebuttal to what mm-hmm. he's saying. Okay. I said earlier that it doesn't make sense. No, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. He's asking the crowd, do you know this person or do you know this? Do you see anybody with these? No, Sheriff. Do you see these characteristics in anybody that you know? Right. Because you're supposed to be Mm -hmm. doing this investigation.
1: Right. That's what I'm saying. This makes no sense that he's putting this out there because he's supposed to be the one looking for this.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And why the hell would you say all of this in a press conference that's mm-hmm. on the news, mm-hmm. where whoever this is, he's probably going to see it and be like, right. "Oh shit, he's on to me."
1: Right.
0: I got to get out of here. Uh
1: huh.
0: It doesn't. I go back to what we said. It makes no sense. Right. Why you would say these things?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. This is really starting to piss me off. Uh
1: huh. Okay. Our last victim is Nicole Guillory. She was 26, and she was found on August the 19th of 2009. Mm. Her estimated day of death was August the 17th of '09. She was found off of I-10 between mile markers 73 and 74. She was found by roadway workers.
0: Holy shit. Yeah. That is much different right? than, uh, I mean, because that is way north of Jennings.
1: Right. She was partially clothed. She was nude from the waist down. She had tramadol, cocaine, and alcohol in her system. Her manner of death was asphyxia. And like you just said, that she was disposed of differently. And it said the killer deviated in the disposal of her body compared to the earlier victim's who had been discarded on the rural backroads of Jefferson Davis Parish.
0: So, you said between my marker, what?
1: 73 and 74. 65, 64.
0: Oh, shit. Oh, Ooh. shit. She was dumped. And no disrespect, I, I don't mean dumped as in, you know, but dumped. Right. 73, way east of town. Right. Now... That is that is headed that is heading east. So mm-hmm. if you're traveling east
1: mm-hmm.
0: on I-10, mm-hmm. the exit to get off for Jennings mm-hmm. is exit number 64.
1: Oh, so she was some miles away. Ten
0: miles, roughly. Ten miles wow. to the east. Wow! So somebody
1: drove out of town.
0: Like the killer was heading out of town. Like right. I got to get out of town. Mm-hmm. And I need to discard this body on my way out of town. Mm -hmm. That's what I immediately think of Mm -hmm. when you say that. Mm -hmm. I'm like, this guy just held this press conference saying this, this, and this. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: He knows that the community is on his back now. Is this killer heading out of town? And he, you know, you see what I'm saying?
1: Right. Well, the press press conference was in December of 2008. She was found on August of 2009. Yeah, yeah. So that press conference was what eight months before she yeah, was found,
0: yeah. Okay,
1: yeah. In late November of 2008, a Jennings sex worker had told task force investigators that one of her clients had just picked up Nicole and she felt that Nicole might be the next victim. I don't know what constituted that, um, it didn't go into detail.
0: That was months prior to her actual death.
1: Right. But the tip that the task force received was never followed up on. What? Mm Mm-hmm. The task force never followed up on the tip. So it kind of makes you think if they followed up on it, could her death have been prevented?
0: Well, you got to think, if it was followed up on when the tip was given... Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe not because it was months later. I mean, several months later. Right.
1: But still, if they had followed up on it.
0: Mm. I have to wonder just following up on the tip, like you say,
1: mm-hmm.
0: where did the tip come from and how did this person think?
1: Right. Well, since these tips were given to the task force, they didn't put out names. So. Wow. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, like you say. Why wasn't the tip followed up on? And if it was, could they have, you know, what, ma'am, what makes you think Mm -hmm. this?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: What have you seen that makes you come Mm -hmm. to this conclusion that you think, you know, Mm -hmm. that's all the following up on I would need. Okay, give me a, give me a name. Right. Give me something Mm -hmm. that makes you think this. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Mm.
1: Nicole was not merely in the lifestyle of sex workers she was actually in the center of it like she knew a whole lot about everything so she was kind of the I guess kind of the higher up workers that knew a lot
0: like names of Johns
1: yeah Johns Mm -hmm. criminals yeah yeah
0: so she was in the know Mm
1: mm-hmm and you'll find out in a minute. Um, okay. Yeah. By the midsummer of 2009, Nicole realized that she was in too deep. And
0: usually, when you start knowing John's names of maybe some high-profile mm-hmm. people and things, you you're in too deep. Mm-hmm. You need to go. Mm-hmm. She, like you need to get out of town, not go, and you need to be put to death.
1: Right. Um, Nicole told her mother Barbara. Not to worry about baking a birthday cake because she doubted she would be alive to blow out the candles. Whoa. For their safety, Nicole had her four children placed with relatives. Her mother said that she always lived in fear. She was paranoid, and it got to the point where she did not want to go anywhere by herself.
0: Huh.
1: An elderly acquaintance was the last person to see Nicole. His name was Shelby Janice. He's seen her between 7 and 7.30 a.m. on Sunday, August the 16th. She was climbing into a white van that was driven by Jeff Daniels, who was Ernestine's father. Ernestine was victim number two. Oh, wow. Mm Mm-hmm. Daniels told investigators that he did pick up Nicole that morning, and they drove around town for a little bit. And then he dropped her off at Ray's Laundry and Cleaners. And that was the last time she was seen. Okay. Nicole did feel that she would be a victim. And she had actually told family members before she died that the police were involved in the other deaths.
0: Whoa. Mhm. So she did know. Mhm. Oh my goodness. Mhm. Okay.
1: On October the twenty eighth of two thousand and nine, Sheriff Edwards held a second task force press conference. Come on now. They wanted he wanted to address the public's concerns, and this time it was held at the parish courthouse. He was joined by the special agent in charge of the New Orleans FBI office and sheriffs and police chiefs from surrounding parishes. The team wanted to provide an update regarding where they were in the investigation. They announced that there was an increase in the reward that was being offered. Uh, it was originally at 35,000, it was being increased to 85,000. Wow. Sheriff Edwards boasted that investigators have followed nearly 1,000 leads. What? <laughs> they have interviewed approximately 500 people, and they have fielded countless telephone calls providing information on these cases.
0: Yes, yeah, show me the transcripts. Show me the recordings.
1: Mm-hmm. His statement again, it is the collective opinion of all agencies involved in this investigation that these murders may have been committed by a common offender. He then even suggested that they had a serial dumper. What? Let me let that sink in. The serial dumper was behind the unsolved murders. A phrase that he admitted to a reporter, because a reporter said, serial dumper. He admitted that serial dumper is terminology that I guess we're making up.
0: What the fuck?
1: Serial dumper.
0: What What explanation did he give behind the word serial dumper?
1: It's terminology, I guess, we're making up. So he just... made up that word. He
0: is just refusing to say the word killer.
1: hmm He ended the press conference with, We will take no questions today, and we thank you for your continued efforts to release factual information, not opinions or gossip.
0: Factual in that this is a serial dumper. hmm Like, this guy rolls around town...
1: Taking dumps. dumps. Right. Okay. Soon after that press conference, local NBC affiliate KPLC aired a seven-part series on the Jefferson Davis 8. Mike Dubois, Whitney's brother, appeared in the series. In a taped interview, he claimed to have no confidence in the task force or the sheriff's department.
0: I don't know that I would have said the, the task force. I would have said the sheriff's department.
1: Well, I mean, the task force ain't getting anything done either. I mean, they're not even following up on leads.
0: Right, but the the sheriff's department's at the hub of this thing, and they're probably, you know, the task force is feeding things to the sheriff's department and say, hey, follow up on this, follow up on this, and the sheriff's department's just not doing it.
1: Right. About one week after the series aired, Dubois was driving from Houston to Jennings when he was pulled over. He was still recovering from cancer treatments and a surgery that had removed part of his neck muscle, jugular vein, and 35 lymph glands. Holy shit. His doctors were in Houston, so that's why he was driving from Houston. Police claimed that they were acting on an anonymous tip and stopped Dubois on suspicion of drug trafficking. What the? The police claimed they were, that they recovered dozens of prescription pills from Dubois' car. Including 30 Xanax and 30 Tramadol, which to me says, okay, he That's probably a prescription. Just had his prescriptions filled. Dubois insisted that he had prescriptions for the medication. Sure. On November the 10th of 2009, he was charged with possession with the intent to distribute. <laughs> Prison officials declared him a high-profile inmate, and he was shipped to the Cameron Parish Jail, which is about 70 miles from Jennings.
0: Yeah. Straight south, I believe.
1: Dubois said they knew what they were doing. They wanted me where I couldn't get to No lawyers from Jennings, come there and see him. They wanted to hide him away. Dubois actually had several attempts to bond out, but it was denied, so he spent 18 months incarcerated in Cameron Parish. Oh, my God. He said they thought they was going to shut me up, but I did telephone interviews from jail. Good for him. He actually made headlines, and he garnered support from several of the families of the Jefferson Davis 8 victims, thanks to a series of jailhouse interviews. Barbara Guillory, who was Nicole's mother, said it was a setup from hell, and everybody in town knew that. Oh, yeah. She said, we're not stupid. She said, if you don't hush, they'll put you in jail.
0: Damn. Mm Mm-hmm. This is
1: insane insane okay so that's our victims this is our press conferences um that have happened so i'm fixing to introduce you to some of the other key players okay in this episode and then like i said the next episode will actually be the theories but i gotta introduce y'all to these people because these people are going to be in the theories okay our first one is frankie richard okay he was born on July the 24th of 1955. His father owned a trucking company, and his mother was a housewife. He has three brothers and one sister. An oil field accident in the late 80s left Frankie with a broken back, Mm. so he used the settlement to start a dump truck business. Good for him. No. He then flipped the dump truck business and opened a strip club.
0: I mean, okay, I mean, it's a business.
1: Yeah, but... You're fixing to learn about Frankie. Oh. (laughs) At one point, he owned four strip clubs in Lafayette during the 90s. But violence and alcohol would be his downfall. When Lafayette got too dangerous, he moved back in with his mother in Jennings. He began hustling prescription pills, and the main place he did business was at the Boudreaux Inn.
0: (laughs) Okay, let me look at the Boudreaux.
1: Yeah. The Boudreaux Inn was a key place in town to trade for sex and drugs. Plus, it was just yards from I-10. The Boudreaux contained two buildings. The front building was a restaurant and a bar, and the back was a motel with 14 rooms. So, what would happen would, would sex workers could pick up a john at the bar, and then they could go to the next building and have sex in the rooms. They could rent a room for three hours for $25. Okay. In the mid-2000s, Frankie was actually pimping women out at the motel.
0: Okay.
1: Frankie was one of the most respected and feared street hustlers in the parish.
0: Nice. Yeah, you need
1: to Google a picture of him. If you stuck with Frankie, you were safe. All of the victims, except for Ernestine, were associates of Frankie's. However, Ernestine was once a mate at the Boudreaux. Frankie's criminal history ranges from theft to rape and murder. He has been arrested 37 times with zero convictions.
0: How the fuck does that even happen?
1: The conclusion is that the police fear what Frankie knows about their misconduct. So, therefore, he's not convicted. <laughs> Also, his relationships with the police extend to the highest ranks of the task force.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Frankie was actually issued a key to the task force office. Multiple witnesses watched Frankie let himself in both day and night.
0: Holy shit.
1: His law enforcement relationship actually precedes the Jefferson Davis 8 killings. A law enforcement witness named Frankie as a co-conspirator in the March 2nd, 1990, theft of nearly 300 pounds of marijuana from the sheriff's office. <laughs> the other conspirator was a deputy.
0: 1990. Mm-hmm. So Edwards was sheriff, right? No. No, no the other formier. sheriff. The other mm-hmm. one. Yeah. Okay. Because um, he was sheriff until 92. Right. right. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. But the other conspirator was a deputy. Wow. Frankie has also been dubbed the Cajun Country Charles Manson.
0: He looks like it, too. <laughs>
1: right? Frankie grew up with Whitney's relatives, the Dubois family. hmm And Brittany's family actually helped Frankie's brother, Billy, recover from colon cancer. Okay. Kristen actually found Frankie as a father figure and a protector, and she would call him Uncle Frankie. Kristen and Frankie's lives intersected for many years, because Frankie's sister Tabitha actually babysat Kristen when she was younger. Okay. And Frankie's family also assisted in the raising of Kristen because her mother, right, was on drugs and unable to care for her. Okay, that's Frankie. Jeez. We're on to Terry Gillery. Terry Gillery is Nicole Gillery, the eighth victim. Yeah. He's her cousin. He is actually the warden of the Jefferson Davis Parish Jail. Several witnesses claimed that he ran the jail like a Boudreaux Inn from behind bars. <laughs> Guillory prostituted female inmates out to John's on the outside and released inmates, both male and female, from the jail in exchange for sexual favors. Wow. Terry was the person that people called on if they needed help, like... If they got a ticket, they would call Terry, hey, can you make this go away? And Terry would be like, well, what kind of info you got for me?
0: Okay. Yeah. Tit for tat. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Nicole, Nicole victim number eight and Terry's cousin, her boyfriend, Michael Prudham, told investigators that Nicole would routinely gain her freedom when she was locked up for her mini arrest and there, she had at least eight, according to court records, by having sex with Guillory. He was her cousin. He
0: was her, yeah. hmm The hell.
1: Guillory also had a fling with Loretta, victim number one. Loretta's brother, Nick, said that they were picked up one night, this is when they were younger, by Terry for breaking curfew. So Terry took them to his house, Terry's house, to spend the night. Nick said that he woke up in the middle of the night to see Loretta coming out of Terry's bedroom. They had had sex. Loretta was 15. Mm. Whenever Loretta was in jail, and this was corroborated by witnesses, Terry would go to Loretta's jail cell and have sex with her right there in the jail cell.
0: What? hmm hmm Where was the sheriff at the time?
1: Apparently, he don't give a shit. <sighs> Our next person, Officer Danny Berry. Officer? hmm Or Dep- Deputy, whichever you want to call him. Danny Barry patronized South Jennings sex workers nearly daily. What he would do is him and his wife would ride around and pick up girls together. His wife would actually get the girls and then they would take the girls back to their trailer and Barry actually had a room in his trailer that had chains hanging from the ceiling and there was plastic wrap all over that room like a sex dungeon.
0: God dang it. Mm-hmm. If the trailers are rocking, right. don't come knocking.
1: And on Barry, he actually, I'm going to give you all a little spoiler alert. Um, the task force actually had nine different people implicate him in some of the murders. So his name was Witness? brought up nine times.
0: Witnesses, mm-hmm. I'm assuming.
1: Yeah. Nine times.
0: Nine times.
1: Mm-hmm. And another little, I'm going to give you another little tidbit. When you find out how the investigators handled him, you're going to be pissed. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Jeez.
1: So, another little interesting fact, the Boudreaux Inn.
0: Which is no longer, by the way. Which is no
1: longer. So, it had long been said by sex workers and law enforcement that the Boudreaux Inn was operated by politically powerful men. So, the author of this book, who was also an investigative reporter, started digging. So, he found the lease for the Boudreaux Inn, and the Boudreaux Inn, the lease was signed by a Martin P. Guillory, who went by Big G. Okay. Guillory was a field representative for Louisiana Congressman Charles Bustani or Bustani. I'm trying to remember his commercials because I remember his commercials. Bustani ran his campaign based on conservative family values.
0: Bo- <laughs> hmm
1: Big G has a phone number in Bustani's office on Capitol Hill, and he makes public appearances on behalf of Bustani. In October of 2013, Big G attended a fake break ceremony for an oil field manufacturing facility in Bustani's stead. Big G is also connected to former Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal. Oh, shit. In 2008, Jindal appointed Big G to the Louisiana State Parks and Recreation Commission. Oh, my God. A sex worker who had been interrogated by the task force said that Bustani was a well-regarded client of Loretta Kristen, and Muggy all said that he was a good trick. He would be at the end, and he had money, and he had the dope.
0: Okay. I have to ask, why Jennings? I don't know. Why Jennings? Of all places. Okay, so you're halfway in between Lake Charles Mm -hmm. and Lafayette. Congressman, Mm -hmm. they're they're out of Baton Rouge. Mm -hmm. You know? So... Why Jennings? Because it's Big, a it's a fly on the map. I, know. I mean, it's nothing.
1: Well, okay, less chance for you to get caught, and then your guy that works for you, Big G, corrupt gonna sheriff. Rat, he's not going to rat you out. So, in the fall of two thousand twelve, a witness contacted the task force to pass along information that Bustani uh, engaged in sexual activity with, with at least one of the victims. On May the 9th of 2016, Ethan Brown, who was the investigative reporter that actually wrote this book, asked Bustani if he was aware of Big G's role at the Boudreaux Inn and or any of the criminal activity occurring there, or if he had ever visited the inn in any capacity, or if he engaged in sexual relationships <laughs> or relationships God, of dang. any nature Damn. with any of the Jefferson Davis 8. So on May the 16th, Uh, Ethan Brown received an email from Bustani's communications director, Jack Pandle. This is what he replied. Dr. Bustani had no knowledge of Martin Guillory, Big G, Big G's prior involvement at the establishment you mentioned. After double-checking our office's records, Dr. Bustani has never had any contact with any of the eight victims you mentioned. Obviously, this case is a tragedy, and Dr. Bustani is saddened, Something like this could happen in southwest Louisiana. Brown then asked, has Congressman Bustani ever visited the Boudreaux Inn? Because that question wasn't answered and in any capacity. And Jack Pandle replied, to my knowledge, the congressman hasn't ever visited that establishment. Well...
0: To my knowledge. To
1: my knowledge. Well, Brown, the investigative reporter, contacted one of Boudreaux Inn's former manager... Suzette East. She managed the Boudreaux Inn from 2000 until the motel closed in 2008. She says she met Bustani at the Boudreaux Inn. But she did say he was campaigning. He had met a lot of people. He talked and he answered a lot of their questions. And he didn't stay long because he was campaigning from town to town that day. Now, I want to throw out. If you were campaigning from town to town and you were in Jennings... Why would you be...
0: At the Boudreaux.
1: At the Boudreaux. Why would you not be like a library or a town hall or somewhere on the north side of town where the rich people and all that are? Well, far?
0: actually, okay, so the Boudreaux Inn was near I-10, uh-huh. which is on the very north, high north side of mm-hmm. Jennings.
1: Mm-hmm. Why would you campaign there?
0: Because for one don't, thing, I don't know. Because, like I said, this is on the north side of Jennings, but mm-hmm. it's on the south side of I ten. It's mm-hmm. right there. It was mm-hmm. right there by I ten. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe he was running through town and stopping, and that's the first thing off the interstate.
1: Okay, maybe with the way Boo drink Boo. Boudreaux Inn is known in town. I mean, it's known as a whorehouse. Well, the
0: sheriff, any reputable sheriff would have said, no, do not go there.
1: That and Big G would have said, hey, man, you don't want to come. Because Big G knew it was a whorehouse. So why would you stop? I mean, that First of all.
0: It looks like a run-down strip club is what it looks like. Because my
1: thing is, yeah, I mean. I know you're campaigning, but the people that are there, and I'm not downing these people, but they're there for their sex and their drugs. They don't give a shit about what this congressman is coming to tell them.
0: Oh, they—they they probably, at the time, did not even care about voting or or right. anything That's what like I'm that. So they it's don't like care. they don't. Wow! Wow! I mean, this is. Yeah. Mm.
1: Okay. So I put this in there. Um boost and I'm saying this Boostani and Big G there's no evidence that they are actually connected to any of the murders but I'm putting I put this in there because to, just to kind of show that the kind of people that these women had yeah. relationships with I mean it even went up to politicians so,
0: so okay so again I have to ask why Jennings and 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 I'm sure that something is going to come out in part two Mm -hmm. where that kind of points me in the direction but at the same time it's like was there any benefit other than you probably had the sheriff in your pocket that's where i'm going with that right you know that Mm -hmm. you can get away with this here because the sheriff is you're a guy right you know Mm -hmm. Uh, that's the only thing i can come up with
1: right so okay one last thing On July 25th of 2007, Harvey Bird Dog Burley... I don't know if you remember him Mm -hmm. from the beginning of the story. Mm -hmm. A family member discovered that he had been stabbed to death inside his home. And he was a witness to the Lunar Crochet killing because it was at his home. Hmm. The family member said when she tried to get in the door, she noticed blood. And to this day, his murder remains unsolved. But before he died... Bird Dog had told friends that he had gathered crucial intel inside the Jefferson Davis Eight slayings. Mike Dubois, who is Whitney's brother, said just before he was killed, he told me, I'm close to finding out who killed your sister.
0: Oh, shit.
1: And he said, I almost got everything I need. And then he was murdered.
0: I think I have my.
1: Your idea? Yeah, my idea uh-huh.
0: of of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing about it is, is I, I think that the listeners have probably been able to come up with the same theory, I uh-huh. guess, because it is pretty just glaring. But I will wait.
1: I was going to say, I just, when I started reading, I was like, oh, I know. But then when I start giving you the theories, you're going to be like, what? What yeah. the fuck? Yeah, all right. Because there's there's so many people involved. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. And I want to put another disclaimer out there. I want to stress again that I I brought up Bus- Congressman Bustani, which I don't even know if he's still in office anymore, and Big G, that there there is no evidence that they were involved in the killings at all. Okay. So just. Showing okay. the women's political connections. Got it. Um Also, before we get to the, to the next episode of the theories, just keep an open mind because what you think happened, it might not have happened that way. Yeah. So, just saying.
0: Okay. hmm Wow. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm trying to keep an open mind. Right. But, I mean, my mind is, is going directly to... A couple of people right and it's like they're not the ones pulling the trigger Uh uh-huh but they're like i feel like they're they're like pulling the strings Uh uh-huh like a puppet master and i'm not talking about the congressman either
1: right oh yeah because i mean he's really he's not involved
0: right so i'm i mean it's like i don't know i'm gonna save that
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and and before the next episode i want to give you Yeah, I was just going to say,
1: you can give me your
0: theory. I'll give you my theory at the beginning of the next episode. And then you can disprove it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. Wow. So, hopefully, we won't have to wait long to hear that because I am definitely on the edge of my chair. Right. Sitting straight up and, and is like, you know, give me more. As you were you know, going through the different victims and where Uh they were found, and you were, you know, naming these different buildings and things. I was on maps, and Uh I was definitely looking. I like to see, and, uh, you know, I Googled uh, the Boudreaux Inn and Mm -hmm. saw the pictures. You know, I told you that. Well, also what came up was pins on a map Mm -hmm. of where all the bodies were found.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And, yeah, so... I see a pattern
1: right. here, mm-hmm.
0: and I, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking my theory may be right. Okay. So we'll see. Okay. Can't wait. Wow. <laughs> well, look, we're gonna go ahead and end this uh, episode until uh-huh. the next episode, but I'm gonna just, I'm gonna just end this episode like this. If you're not sitting on the edge of your chair, sitting straight up and trying to put theories together to try to solve this unsolved case that has happened very recently, by the Mm -hmm. way, then you may be a criminally disturbed serial dumper. (laughs) So, see you guys in the next episode.
1: Bye.